Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 129 of Good Humans Podcast with a very, very fun guest by the name of Mitch Wallace. This guy is someone I truly look up to and you're going to get so much value out of this episode, so make sure you listen to the whole thing. A big thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Drinker Repper. These guys have been supporting this podcast for such a long time and taking care of my brain so, so much. I drink their product and use their powders and their capsules every single day, and I see so many benefits from it. So it's a brain drink, all developed and designed by neuroscientists. I've spent so much money and time on clinical studies to really show that their product is going to have an impact on your brain. You can head over to their website, drinkarepa.com, check out the science, check out some of the studies, and you can also learn all about their products. But most importantly, on their website, you can use the code GOODHUMAN for a massive 25% off everything over on their website. Use that code, tag both drinkarepa and at Cooper Chapman on your Instagram. We'd love to know what you think of it. Also, if you're walking through Coles or Woolies and you see that little glass purple bottle with a big A on it, that's your rapper drink. Grab one on your walk past and see what you think of it. We'd love to know if you're enjoying it. Also, can you do me a huge favor? Go check out thegoodhumanfactory.com. We've just dropped a whole bunch of new merch. There's so many really cool designs that are going to be hitting the shelves uh, very soon, but also all of our gratitude stuff has been restocked. You can also learn about my Good Human workshops. We have our Feel Good workshop and our gratitude experience. The last month has been crazy. I presented for Red Bull, for Amazon, for so many different schools and businesses around the country, which I absolutely love. And I've got a few spaces left to finish off the year. So if you look in the show notes, you'll be able to find the request form. But more importantly, you can find it over on the website. Use the code podcast on the website for 25% off all of the merch as well. Okay, today's episode, Mitch, this guy has got a crazy story to tell. One of the most inspiring young men in the country when it comes to mental health and someone who I said, who, as I said before, I truly look up to. So Mitch was a smart kid at school, ended up working for Microsoft when he finished school and got headhunted and brought over to America and had this beautiful life from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out, Things weren't quite like that for Mitch. He was struggling quite a lot with his mental health. And then instead of going to get help, he decided, you know what? I'll study psychology and learn how to help myself. So he studied psychology at Columbia over in uh, over in America. And yeah, realized this is what I want to do. He left his job at Microsoft and ever since has been really tackling mental health issues around the country here in Australia and around the world. He started a charity called Heart on My Sleeve, which is just massive and making some massive, massive impacts around the country and the world. And he also is a keynote speaker and workshop um, facilitator for his own personal brand, Mitch Wallace, which is just so cool. He's presented for some of the biggest companies in the world. His program, Real Conversations, and other programs he's created have got the most amazing evidence to show that it's massively impacting the people who he works with. He shared a lot of his great tips in this podcast. I know there's so much value in it. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a huge favor. Just share it with one friend. 
send them a text message, go, hey, you should listen to this podcast. There's some really interesting stuff in there. It really helps us get this podcast growing. I don't have the marketing budget. It's just me doing this little thing myself. So any way that you guys can help grow the pod is super appreciated. Another simple way to help us grow is just go and hit subscribe, hit follow, or just give us five-star rating. So, so easy. And go over to the Instagram page, Good Humans Pod. Check out there. You can see all the episodes right in front of your face and go back and find any episode that you think might be interesting. So let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Mitch Wallace. Go on, mate. Coops, any day around you is a good day. Mate, it's um, it's finally happened. We've been talking about doing this for a while. I jumped on your podcast a few months back down in Sydney, which was great. And we've been connecting, saying we're going to get you on mine. And today it worked out. You were like, hey, can I borrow your podcast room to have a guest on mine while I'm on the Goldie? And I'll come jump on yours. And I was like... Hell yeah, let's do it. So yes, here you are. Uh, here I am. How's, um, how's your trip on the Goldie been? Loving the Goldie. It's got a certain tranquility, not to use a lame word straight off the bat, but it does have a different energy to Sydney. Even running along the beach last night, I, um, I saw someone, it was just, the sun had just gone down and I saw this girl. She didn't know that I was near uh, her because I was kind of running around and uh, she was making this kind of flowy arm movement to herself and you could just tell that that was the part of her day that was the part that she wanted to bottle up forever mm. you know no matter what happened in her day I could tell that just those footsteps in the sand alone next to the ocean as the sun had gone down she was at peace and I took a lot from just passing her by I almost stole some of her peace like as in I want to take that moment that you're having and just bottle it up for myself because it helps you remember that they, that, that is everything. Mm. Those small things are what will trump the highlight of almost anything that happens in your day. Yeah. Those moments where you can just be completely present and like almost that childlike presence that you have when you forget about anything else going on in the world. And like you have those moments down the beach and we had, um, my partner Carol, she's Brazilian, and one of her good friends here on the Gold Coast is Brazilian now too. And they were telling me and the boys um, about a game they played when they were a kid called Gato Meow, and it's a game where it's like basically like hide and seek. But once you find the, it's like in the dark with blindfold, and when you find them, you have to touch them, but you can't, you don't move, and then you got to say Gato Meow, and then you have to do a meow sound, and you have to guess who the meow was. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, me and the boys played it with the girls the other night and we were, the girls were like, we haven't played this since we were little kids and we used to play it in like the smallest little places in Brazil but now we have bigger rooms like, and just all of us were like, we're going to play again tomorrow night. Yeah, Those yeah. moments that bring you back to like that childlike presence. Play, man. It's play so is, good. Play is so important. Uh, you know, it's one of the key attributes in psychology of a thriving headspace and you know, with all the shit that goes on in adulthood, we forget to play or we look at play as self-destruction. Mm. Let's go out and get as fucked up as we possibly can. That's not play. Mm. Um, that's sabotage. And I think play to me is moments where, yeah, you do feel like a child and the, the world just kind of shifts and lifts for a second. Mm. Um, and we hear a lot of the time in the work that I do, the B word, the dreaded B word, which is busy. I fucking hate that word. It's just so lazy to say you're busy because we're all trading units of priority. And depending on what you think you have and have not to do, you could be busy or not busy. It's all just a viewpoint. Mm. And uh, we, 
when we learn to prioritize not just things that are our responsibilities, sure, we, mm-hmm. ha- we all have responsibilities, but also learn that the more we can invest in our own self-care, we're a better parent, we're a better people manager, we're a better partner mm-hmm. and everything else. So it's not that self-care is selfish. I, I argue that a lack of self-care is selfish. Mm, I've, I completely agree. That balance that a lot of us aren't getting in life is so important. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why the mental health of the world is declining, which we're going to talk about in this chat. Me and you are both obviously, maybe not obviously to the people listening, but Mitch is one of the most highly touted mental health speakers in the country, someone who I truly look up to and somebody that I was introduced to by Alex Hayes when we were in Byron at the corner store one of those little places I remember it super clearly and I was like you got to meet this guy so ever since then back in 2020 I've been following your journey and then I feel like we've kind of built a bit of a social media friendship we finally caught up did your potty and now doing this has been um, yeah I appreciate you being so open when we caught up on your potty about business and sort of a bit of mentoring and sharing your journey because you've kind of done similar to what I'm trying to do but maybe a couple years ahead of me so it's going to be really fun for me to rewind and hear the whole way through your journey. I've been, like I said, you're looking forward to this chat for a very long time. So mm. before we go back to the start, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask at the start of all of my podcasts. Yeah, I'm sure right. you'll enjoy this one. What are you grateful for right now? I am grateful for a newfound sense of health. I think I was telling you mm. that I'm doing this parasite cleanse at the moment and it's something that I've been avoiding for ages. And I always know that my gut is so interlinked to the way that I feel uh i've tried lots of things like gluten-free dairy-free in and out of it i don't feel the immediate benefits so i kind of just go Meh, to the side yeah but uh the girl that i'm dating at the moment tash she's an incredible person and it just so happened that she was planning on doing this parasite cleanse and i said i'm supposed to do one my doctor has literally compounded all the supplements for me. She's told me to do it. I just can't find the time because it's a huge sacrifice where you give up grains, carbs, sugar, coffee, alcohol, etc. And and coming into Are You OK Day, World Mental Health Day, etc. I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to keep pushing this back. And she's like, let's just start and do it. And lesson, never a good time to start. Just fucking do the thing. Mm. And... The first two weeks were an absolute punish as my body was withdrawing from a number of quote-unquote addictions, uh, caffeine and et cetera, even like getting off the beers. I'm not a massive drinker, but socially and maybe like at some points, a couple of day, like with dinner or dinner and um, with friends, et cetera. But the first couple of weeks was a punish. And then now I'm coming out the other side of that and holy shit, I feel like a different human mm. with more energy, exercising, I've lost fat, my productivity's gone through the roof. I did a keynote speaking event yesterday to uh, hundreds of people in a room and I don't really get nervous. But even yesterday I felt like zero nerves, like not a nerve inside mm. <laughs> um, just because I'm so plugged in at the moment. So I'm grateful that my body has responded positively to a hard shift. And I'm also grateful to relearn one of the core learnings that I teach others, which is the only way around is through. Mm -hmm. And there's usually pain before there is relief and not to give up in the early moments of starting a new habit because you won't get rewarded in the short term, you'll get rewarded in the Mm -hmm. long. Mate, I love it. What a beautiful thing to be grateful for. And a great reflection for anyone watching and listening right now to maybe reflect on your own 
things that you're putting off. What's that thing right now mm. that you're like, oh, I'm kind of being a bit of an ostrich, just putting my head in the ground, letting it try and pass by. I'm sure there's people listening right now that there's that conversation they need to have, that workout they need to start. Let Mitch's gratitude be a bit of inspiration for that, hopefully. Yeah. But man, let's, uh, let's rewind back to the start. As I said, I know quite a bit, not a lot, but about what you're doing now. Mm. But there's a chapter prior to what you're doing now that really fascinates me working with Microsoft. Mm. But it also fascinates me where you came from and how we got there. So mm. let's, as Stephen Bartlett would say, let's rewind back to the beginning yeah. and what do I need to know about your upbringing? Let's talk. And two, you kind of went to high school that formed you as a youngster and the sort of values and belief systems that you have now. I think the, the easiest way to understand me is to understand the relationship I have with my mum. And she's my rock, my angel. Um, it sounds lame, but when someone is literally the reason that you've been able to stay alive, then it's worth giving the shout out that she deserves. And that is kind of my earliest memory, which was she was a professional horse riding instructor. I was born on like a mini farm and my first ever memory of life is sitting on my horses because I had a horse personally mm -hmm. at that age, unnecessarily, Jeremy, on his feed bin and chewing his ear uh, as he ate dinner and, and I could walk around his hind legs and he wouldn't buck or anything. And looking back on it, I think that was my first real taste of trust. And we had the chickens, Steggy, I would like, I would wake up in the morning, run across the property to my grandparents' place because they're in this tiny little cottage with my nappy full and I'd gra grab Steggy the chicken and I'd put her in the feed bin thinking that she wanted to be close to her food and <laughs> my parents would be like, where the fuck's the chicken? <laughs> um, so that's kind of how it all started is that real salt of the earth and now, you know, wind forward and then we'll wind back again. But if we wind forward and look at where my parents ended up, um, they have created this incredible life for themselves, material affluence, senior directors at large multinational um, IT firms. And uh, we came from no money. And now we are surrounded by this healthy, stable unit and, and enough wealth to get by and, and then some. And that's at the root of everything. I got a fucking battler in me, like watching mm. my mum wrangle these incredibly large hoses and disassemble things in the dam by herself as a she had me at 21 22 wow. and was divorced by the my i was two years old so she was a kid raising a kid on a property and then wanted to provide a better life for us so tenaciously from going from the farm to the it industry fought her way in to try and get into sales to give me a better life and crushed it along the way. She has this incredible resilience, never say die attitude. And so at heart, I cherish my inner bogan, despite me now living on Bondi Beach and, you know, living that life and then doing the Microsoft thing. Yeah, I think that connection to like land as well and like seeing how animals Huge. are raised is so important and we don't realize it i think the kids who are lucky enough like i i, I mean i lived in the city in narrabeen in sydney but we still had chickens in the backyard and pets at times a bit different in experience to being on a farm but i think that connection to like understanding where food comes from and respecting that whether it be subconscious or conscious is pretty important for a kid's development and now you live in the city like you said having that in your core 
feel like you can feel it sometimes when it's that like intuition of like, oh, that's where the food comes from. You might respect it a little bit more. It's huge, man. Um, I don't know. I haven't spoken about this, so I don't know how this is going to come out. We can edit it out if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but uh, when I was in Bali, Tash, she's like, I was staring at this ant. I was in the pool and just looking over the ledge, staring at this ant. And I, f- I felt like a, a relationship to it. By the way, I was on no psychedelics. This is my normal like Monday morning <laughs> hey, type I do of this thoughts. Stuff all the time, ready to. And, and and she's like, "What are you looking at?" I said, "The ant. Like it's a living being, and there's trillions of these little bastards everywhere right now, and there's trillions of other species that." are alive or have been alive or will be alive. And doesn't it dawn on you that this tiny little thing with antennas right here is just a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck and then you zoom out again and we're a speck on a galaxy of a speck of a speck. And she said, so you're connecting with the ant? And I said, yeah. I honestly, I don't know if it's because I'm an empath, because I've been at the brink of suicide, because I was raised around animals or just because I'm fucked in the head which I love, I genuinely feel connected to everything. Mm. So intertwined that, because at the end of the day, for me, the word spirit translates to breath. Spiros is a Greek term, it means breath. And breath to me points at the meaning of life, which is that the aliveness, the energy, even in non-alive objects, atoms, that the essence is frequency and energy and um, vibration. The same breath, in me is the same breath in you this universal consciousness of oneness that we all come from the same place i can even hear myself talking some people are going to tune out now and be like this guy's a hippie it's actually not that and maybe it'll you'll have a moment in your life when you look at a sunset or stare at an ant and this will one day make sense whereby you will see yourself in that ant the same aliveness and connectedness and there's this amazing healing cathartic sense of smallness that comes from moments like that Mm. where the weight of the world lifts from your shoulders because you realize that in a single moment everything matters and nothing matters at the same time and that's Mm. the yin and the yang is that it's not dualistic you don't need to choose everything can matter and nothing can matter Mm. but more than anything get out of your own way and just be a good person because at the end of the day, we're turning into dust. So be good dust. Mm, mate, I, I love everything you said there. We're not <laughs> going to cut it out because I'm going to expand on that. I had a moment literally yesterday where like the last bit of the sunset, how you can kind of look into it. And I was just standing there with my girlfriend, just looking at it going like, isn't it crazy that everything on this planet is powered by that giant fireball? That battery. <laughs> that battery. That was one thing. But then another thing that I do that, once again, is people... I don't. I think more people who listen to this podcast will agree with us and disagree with us. Mm. Whenever I go for a walk and I'm in a beautiful place, I like. It sounds fucking weird, but I'll put my hand up to a tree and I'll be like, "I'm grateful for you." But then I also reflect on the fact that this tree has only ever known what is directly around it, this beautiful place. Like, how amazing for that tree! Yeah, it hasn't been like I go for a walk at Burley Headland. I'm like, this tree has only ever known this environment around it, and probably no one's ever come up to it and given it a bit of gratitude for the air it creates, for just being itself. The roots that it's providing to an ecosystem. So I go around do that it. sometimes, and 
there might be magic mushrooms involved. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but it just in the sense of everything, and then to finish this sort of train of thought before we go back to your story, mm. I do the same, and I learned this through my beautiful partner, Carol. Whenever I sit down or we sit down before we eat our food, we'll sit down and like close our eyes and have a look at it and think about the processes that have gone on from a farmer to the rain that it takes to create the food to grow, for it to be picked by a farmer. We try and shop at the farmer's market, so then it goes to the markets, and then we have that interaction with the farmer. We buy it, and then then when you're eating your food, you're like, wow, all of that to fuel and give my body energy, and you're not going to waste as much food on your plate, I tell you that much, when you start to think like that, how connected it all is. And it's not about, oh, they're starving kids in Africa. It's like, no, I'm giving respect in my own world to the process that is life, that is the creation of food, that is the farming of food, that is the creation and the dispersion of energy that we get from food, from the sun, from everything around us. I think what you're pointing to, Coops, is living a little bit more consciously. Mm. And I definitely do that process with meat in particular because I feel so connected to animals, but I'm not a vegetarian. My way of reconciling it at the moment is before I eat any type of flesh, chicken, beef, pork, etc., I say what I call a prayer. People could call it an affirmation, intention, mm. um, and say, I, I give thanks to the life that ended that is now fueling mine to continue. Mm. And, you know, the way people eat meat nowadays, and we're all guilty of it sometimes, is just like it's fucking lollies. And we forget that that was a living creature before. So... I, I, again, personally don't eat a vegan diet, but what I do understand is that it's important to be consciously grateful Mm. for the energy of a living being. And I think one of the main reasons people don't give that gratitude is that they don't want to feel shameful about where it come from. But you don't need to feel shame. And I think, you know, one of the biggest lessons I have in mental health is that shame is the number one reason why people don't grow. Mm. It is the number one reason why people don't heal properly. They just orbit around a shame membrane and they deny and avoid actually moving toward truth because shame is like the protective swelling that covers a really hard truth. And for most of us, because we're biologically hardwired to avoid pain, we will skirt around and never actually move through the shame and into truth, which Mm. is where emotional freedom exists. So the moment someone feels shame, that's not a stop sign. That's a give way, mm. which is give way and be self-aware to know why the shame is there, but keep fucking going. Mm. Because on the other side of that, you will find a much more rich and fulfilled life. Absolutely. No, I love that. I love. I knew this podcast was just going to be tangent after tangent. Oh, bro, let's keep death. cruising. Let's keep going. We've got a couple hours. Maybe <laughs> yeah. my longest let's one. Let's fucking cruise away. Let's go. So... We've gone off on tangents, but let's go now to your high school life. Yeah. Let's go to young Mitch. Did you have sip? I can't... I... Yeah, so my after my parents divorced when I was two. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go. Mum and I was ra- yeah. we were raising each other, battling away. Then um, my stepdad came into my life at about eight or nine. Incredible man. And mum and him just clicked. They've been married now 20 years. I gave her away at her wedding, walked her down the aisle. And then we kind of picked up this old life and moved to chapter two, teenage years, which is now going from that to I live in Mossman all of a sudden. Mum's killing it in her career. She just met Mark, who's killing it in his career. They've formed this 
thing. So now I have a stable family environment, material affluence, 180 mm. as we come your into high school. Father figure in your life. Father figure. Uh, my dad was, dad was uh, he came back yeah. like after the, his time away and he, he was involved for sure and he's a good man but he had his shit going on emotionally through when I was younger and it has taken us to adulthood to be able to repair and get to where we are today, which is an incredible bond. Um, but I guess chapter two is the chapter of luck and privilege. And okay, now I'm waking up of a morning in this amazing place on the beach, going to a high school. I'm getting a lot of self-worth and self-esteem at that point because, you know, the tangent narrative is the mental illness started at seven. So I'm just painting you the outside world right now. Yeah, I'm getting self-worth because I'm getting a lot of girls. I'm doing very well academically. I'm doing well in sport. Um, and that is allowing me to kind of push and mask through. But the bubbling had already begun. And the bubbling began when it was probably about seven or eight, just before we moved into chapter two. Mark had just come in the scene, I think. And my mum noticed me doing these really strange behaviours around the house. I was touching light switches like hundreds of times and I was blinking for sometimes for like half an hour at a time. I'd be doing these blinking patterns and I'd be praying out loud. And eventually she just came up and was like, you okay? And I said, yeah. Uh, why? She said, well, I can see you doing this stuff. And I said, well, I think that I'm a bad person. And she said, okay, that's not good. And we went to the doctor and that day they were like, yeah, you have acute obsessive compulsive disorder. These are compulsions that you're doing. I didn't, no idea what that meant. Mm -hmm. And I just remember looking at mom and she started to cry and she never cried. She was my hero, my rock. And that's when I started to get really worried. I'm like, okay, a monster is living within me and I'm hurting the only person I love in the world. So this has got to stop. So I got really, really, really good at burying everything and becoming very fucking good at pretending. Mm. And so then would start this narrative of outside world trajectory increase, inside world debilitating breakage until eventually that load snapped. Mm. But yeah, high school, that, that was this constant contrast of I have no idea what's happening internally. But I feel sometimes I would cry myself to sleep for weeks on end. Then the OCD morphed into panic disorder, major depression, depersonalization disorder by my late teens. But I was the cool dude who was killing it. And then straight after high school, I got this internship at Microsoft, youngest intern in the country, still to this day um, in Australia. Within three months, they put me on stage to launch a whole new Uh, category of, of tech um, I then rode that wave into graduate marketing manager and then by the age of 25 got tapped on the shoulder to move to the states as a global product manager had you through this time when you were you say you're like obviously killing it career-wise I'm just gonna like rewind back just to the end of high school had you been seeing psychologists who kept mentioning you um, new disorders that were they diagnosed no. or was that just after you look back this and know is, this is when those were coming up but I didn't know what they were. So these are undiagnosed, you were just dealing with yourself. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I didn't know 
Honestly, I kind of forgot that a doctor ever told me I had OCD. I just yeah. thought I was fucked in the head. When you got told that when you like were younger. Did six you... years ago, by the way. But did you get told when you were that age? I know it's a long time to reflect on. What are you now, 32? 33. 33. I'm just thinking back to that time when you first got told you had OCD and your mum starts crying. That's obviously a big trauma for you. Well, not obviously, but I'm sure that... <laughs> there you go, obviously. And then I said, no, I'm sure. But it sounds like looking back, you now work in mental health. That maybe was a trauma that led to why you do what you do. But can you remember back then if you were given any techniques, strategies, ways to manage your OCD? Or it was just like, he's broken, he's going to be dealing with this. I was all out of yes, the yeah. professional help. I was like, there is no fucking way. I'm lifting the lid up on this thing. Okay. So mum would be like, you know, we should go see someone. And I remember a couple of times I yielded. Um... I would go to a doctor here and there or a psychologist for like a session. And, just not. and then I would get what I would call the dreaded left eyebrow raise, which is the, I never felt understood. Mm. And that would make me disorganize even more and perpetuate the symptoms. So I was like, not, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. I can't, I didn't have the internal capacity, the willingness, the belief that I could. And you know, the, the, the most I got, it, like mum, in my mind, she was the saviour. I, I would only tell her stuff, mm. you know. And she had no idea what to do. She yeah. wasn't a mental health expert. Thankfully, she did a lot of stuff right. And one of the biggest things when I look back as a, on what she did right um, that outweighed the things that she didn't get so right is that she never freaked out ever. And like, other than those, those early that tears that day, whenever she looked at me in the eyes, I knew that it was going to be okay. Mm. She held the fort down. When she said, this is going to be okay, I believed her, mm. even when nothing inside me could. And with that level of stability and lack of fear, coupled with unconditional love of patience, like that's the life raft you come home on. Mm. Um, but, but coming in and out of the system, I think the most that I was open to was to get a book of like your anxiety monster of this yeah. illustration. But I was all out and just using whatever tools would come up along the way. Like in high school, I got really good at just like distract, distract, never be alone, never sit with the feelings and mm. that'll minimize their symptoms. I think about that. Just you saying that reminds me a lot of my sort of, times throughout that end of high school early or late teens early 20s a lot of like distract hang out with your friends do this do that stay busy without facing your fears and then it dwells up and then there's this fear of actually going to see someone because i know and i've listened to some of your stories so I, I can relate a lot with this next part of your story but let's talk about this microsoft chapter real quickly and then we're going to get into the breakdown and the new career change mm -hmm. so tell me about microsoft what was that like obviously you're wicked. carrying all this baggage behind undercover that people don't see but yeah tell me about that journey what um what'd you study and then how'd you end up yeah working bachelor of commerce sydney Uni. well i was actually djing um so straight after high school i was like professionally djing for a job um getting myself through uni dj where's wallace um for many many years in fact there was a serious moment there where i was like i'm gonna become a professional musician and not go down the business path like i'm supposed to um, it was good playing. I was like midnight set at the biggest clubs in the cross at that point on a Saturday night. And I was just starting to dabble into production and 
but then this Microsoft thing kind of took off and I, I would be DJing over weekend while I was working at Microsoft all week and then I'd go and play over weekend in the cross. It was kind of this like dual life that I was living. And then I'm like, oh, I need to go all in on this career. So yeah, I rode the wave and I got, I think a lot of success is a mixture of like tenacity, luck and a tiny bit of intelligence, but mostly a never give up and a shit ton of luck. Mm. And I was that guy in, um, in Microsoft. I had a couple of managers who really liked me and kind of put me on a path so that by the time I got some wins under my belt, 24, 25 came along, I'm still fairly new in my career and applied for a role that was so far out of my depth. Like a glo- an international product manager is essentially a mini CEO for the business. You work with engineering on future product development. You work with supply chain on global logistics of inventory. You work, I was flying to Milan business class, partnering with Vogue, Italia, launching keyboards that were made out of Ferrari interiors at Design Week with Franca Cesani, and I was the go-to stakeholder leader, arriving in international markets where they would come and pick me up and I was the person that the teams would be like, okay, what are we doing? I'm a kid. <laughs> Sounds like fucking going to add to the mental health bubble up, I'm sure. Well, yes and no. I mean... It also probably built a bit of confidence, maybe. How's the imposter syndrome through that? No, era? imposter... I- <laughs> I don't know how to articulate this. Things on the outside world have never really affected me. Like if I was to get hit by a car this afternoon and break my leg, I'd probably be like, oh, it sucks. Or if um, like public speaking or work stress, I mean, they're all, it's funny as someone who has had the most fucked anxiety to the point of dissociation, like was one of my main mental illnesses because I was so riddled with anxiety. It's not the real world that bothers me. It's the um, ethics, morals, character, invisible stuff. Like I'll loop on something that I've said of being like, was that bad? Did I do a bad thing? And um, mm. Or did I treat that person the wrong way? Or um, uh, am, am I a crazy person? Am, am I about to go insane? Like it's been the fear of being crazy and the fear of being a bad person that has driven a hundred thousand times more anxiety than anything here. Mm. Um, like I, I was fucking doing private demos to Robert Downey Jr. Like this in LA, like by the, when I left my career. And by the way, he said that I looked like Jared Leto. So that was pretty fucking sweet. Although I looked <laughs> nothing like him and that was just complete bullshit. Um, but the lifestyle was insane. And of course there were moments of stress, but what was a hundred million times more stressful than work was having to pretend that I was fine and do the work at the same time mm. and just basically live a lie. I remember being in meetings with like very senior stakeholders. I remember exactly where I was sitting and we were in the kitchen lobby of building 37 in Seattle and talking to someone and I would have had a heart rate of 200, I reckon, and and just feeling like I was completely out of body. Like I was looking down on the meeting. I was so dissociated and needing to make the FY plan on the sales forecast and actually just being like, okay, yep, cool. He would have no idea. And I'm almost on the brink of like going into a psychosis. I was that good at pretending. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy, man, to hear you reflect on those periods of your life where 
from the outside in, it looks like everything is going so well. And that's one of the things that I really, when I first launched Good Humans Podcast, the whole initial concept was to take a look behind the scenes of what looks like the perfect life. And I'm sure at that age, you're DJing on the side, you're probably getting all the girls, you've got this big corporate job, but internally, the combustion's about to explode. Mm. So talk to me about that period when it did start to get too much and you have your... Um, breakdown i've reached i know there was one but i haven't researched it fully and i've listened to bits and pieces so let's talk about um what brought you to the end of your microsoft career yeah as much as you're willing to no of course i'll go you're very public about i'll go all there i'm just thinking about the best way in let's go the angle of you being too scared to ask for help because this is something that i can relate to having family history of mental illness a mum that would kind of unintentionally bring up that, oh, it's hereditary, this kind of sort of conversation that I probably wasn't completely listening to but was subconsciously absorbing. And I heard you talk about the fact that you went and studied psychology instead of seeing a psychologist, which Mm. is, we'll catch up to that part of the story, but it's something that I relate to, not that I went and studied psychology, but I started a bloody mental health business because I'm probably too scared to go and see a psychologist. And that's, I have gone and seen one since and I haven't found one that's perfect for me and I, I do endeavour to find one that works well for me because I know your um, your advice around therapy. So talk to me about that fear that you had of getting help. Yeah. So, the end of the Microsoft career and then what leads you on. I, so I could, I could Band-Aid it through most of the time, right? So up until that point, I could figure out some ways to scrap it together, whether that's distracting or overachieving or... Whatever way, I made it 20 years of just, like, getting it done. Mm. It got to a point in 20... When I arrived in the States, so 2015, so 2016. So you took the job 25 years old, moved to the States. Moved to the States, and then it started to go from... I'm used to having daily symptoms and debilitation, but now I'm, like, rapidly declining. I think that was a function of living away from home, being really busy at work, enough, like, triggers... But more than anything, there are certain times in your life where pretending becomes too painful. Mm. And your mid-20s is one of those existential fertile windows where you're going to ask yourself a lot of questions like, who am I? And if there's any bricks that aren't cemented in properly, they're going to start to shake. Mm -hmm. And for me, they were fucking shaking. And I could feel myself slowly, slowly unraveling. And in this desperate lunge for safety, because I was still so scared to go talk to a psychologist, my logic was I'll avoid going into the system by just becoming one. Applied to arguably one of the hardest universities in America, in America to get into, fluked my way in Lord knows how, um, Columbia and New York. F- told my manager at the time, I'm going to go to the East Coast to study consumer behavior to help with my product management and marketing. She's like, awesome. When really I was just going there to try and keep myself alive. We're rocked up in the first hour of the first lecture. I remember thinking, yep, this is what I was put on the earth to do. This is my thing. I'm here to help people heal. But I don't know how I'm going to do that because at that point I was still such a mess. Cue the start of the proper unraveling. It's funny in life sometimes when we kind of open up and we land on this moment of acceptance and truth. We're like, I'm not okay. And then in my mind, at least, it was supposed to be rainbows and a gold path towards now that I've had all this courage to admit I'm not okay, it's going to be gravy. 
Oh no, brother. It is going to be dark before the dawn. And the work then begins, whether you like to or not, usually the moment where you go, okay, I'm accepting truth and I'm open to it, the universe will conspire to help you. But it might look like a very strange form of help. And after that is when I broke completely. I had to check myself in to an outpatient clinic in the middle of nowhere, America. And that, and I remember vividly, I flew back to Seattle after this, this um, treatment. And I was now at, like rock bottom doesn't even come close. I was walking along this pier in, in um, downtown Seattle and I was on the phone to my mum, and I remember looking over the edge of this pier into the sea. And it was like this metaphor where I was on the verge of going into a psychosis. I could feel it. I was lucid enough. And under my feet was this solid ground, but it was almost as if my psyche was like leaning into the abyss. And I knew that if I let go and I went there, I'd never come back. And I said to my mum, I don't think I can stop this. I think this is it for me. And I remember her saying, no, it's fucking not. You got this. And she spoke like through all, with everything that was going on, she she hit like that inner lion, that seven-year-old, the same thing she said the day when I walked out of the doctor's office and got diagnosed with OCD, which is beyond any human realm. It's like, it met a part of me which was like, you have to fight with everything inside you right now to cling on to reality. And I did. I gave it everything. Like, the closest thing I can describe it to is, is like, you're being asked to run a marathon, which you can't do, you're not fit for, you're not trained to, you've got shin splints and everything. And you start running the marathon and someone actually tells you, no, this is four ultras. And you're just like, I can't. But you just fucking do. You crawl and crawl and crawl and crawl and fight and you find a whole platform that you didn't even think existed because you have someone next to you being like, yes, you fucking can and you will. And in that moment, you'll find out who you are. And I, and after that is when I just brought my... And I think it was that day that I went, walked home I opened my laptop and I was just begging for a miracle and I stumbled across a video that would end up saving my life of a guy in his bedroom. His his name's Harris. I've never met him or spoken to him before to this day who wore his heart on his sleeve and shared his story. And as I watched and listened to this dude, I was like, huh, I'm not alone. This is what it is like to be understood. And it's not as if decades worth of pathology of complex mental illness just evaporates after seeing a YouTube video. But but decades worth of pathology of mental illness can't start to evaporate without it. And what it is, is a sense of connection and understanding. Mm. I needed someone to see me. And mum had always loved me, but she could never see me. She could never fully get it. It's impossible. She was the life raft. Harris was like the wave that I was always waiting for to then knock me into the the sand. And in retrospect, what Harris's story did for me in that moment was two things. A, 
it enabled me to let go of a whole bunch of emotional pain. Because emotional pain and suffering is not just the sum of the problem, it's not just the problem you experience. Anxiety, OCD, depression, financial stress, relationship breakups, almost every problem is manageable if not solvable. It's the relationships that you have to the problem itself and the narratives that you tell yourself about it, the biggest one being shame, that's the part that buries people. That is so much more painful. I'm broken, I'm crazy, I'm unlovable, all that shit. Piling that swelling onto a problem, that is deathly. And Harris was like this anti-inflammatory needle that just went, you don't need that swelling anymore, dude. Let that shit go. Mm. So A, a whole bunch of pain released. And then B, he gave me for the first time ever the belief that I could go toward this fucking thing. Mm. Because the six most powerful words I've ever learned in my whole life, the truth will set you free. If there is a hard part, you cannot go around it. You just can't. Mm. I've tried to outrun pain. I have tried in every single thing possible to try and avoid feeling. The avoidance, the denial, the running will lead to, promise you, dysfunctional behavior Breakdowns in relationships, inability to feel joy, deteriorating performance at work, all the above. Mm -hmm. If an emotion exists, it must be felt to be released. There is a tax to pay. You cannot avoid tax. It is one of the truths about life and the truth about biology is you've got to be real to heal. If there is something within you that is scary, if you're like, I don't know why I think this, I don't know why I act like this, I don't know why I feel this, try and answer that question. Because mm. muting it will not get you fucking anywhere. Mate, I, you've got, you, I can just listen to you for hours. You're so good at sharing your story. And, and, and I appreciate you sharing that. It's so powerful and the way that you articulate it and take people on a journey, I think, is going to allow a lot of people to relate to your journey. And I'm excited to go to this next step. But I want to go off the back of what you were just saying because I did a keynote yesterday. Mm. And one of the questions I was asked at the end, I think, Kind of goes off a little bit what you were just saying here. I got asked by this lady, I was speaking to a group of people who are social workers um, for a community group yesterday on a virtual workshop. And at the end, one of them said, how do I not carry the pain of someone who's sad who comes to me? And I mean, you studied psychology. I haven't. This was just my best way to answer to this person. And I just said, this is what I do. If someone comes to me sad, I don't try and avoid that it's going to make me a little bit sad it's accepting that yeah it's okay to feel a bit of sadness but then also have the skills and the awareness to do something that's going to bring you back it might be going and doing something nice for another friend of yours after you brought down a little bit by hearing about something sad it's like we can't avoid the negative feelings that come with life it's learning how to accept them or almost expect them then accept them and then do something to bring yourself back Oh, that I want to geek that... out on that for like 20 years. I'm going to try Let's and... geek out for another few minutes though because <laughs> I know people are going to hear this because people are so avoidant of negative. Okay, this yeah. This is that, basically that. Did I answer it right from a psychology point of view to this person? Pretty much. But let me, yes, you did. Let me colour that in a bit more. So the, 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 what's happening in your brain when you feel sad, when someone else is sad, is a thing called mirror neurons. So um, they... empathy. It's a... It's a fine trait to have isn't it yeah, some, uh, well it's actually a, a biological point. necessity yeah um have you ever seen the mirror neuron monkey study no. so they got two monkeys to sit next to each other and they got they strapped an eeg on one of the monkeys and then they gave the other one a banana 
the monkey with the headset on was observing his friend eating this banana. And when they measured the results, they're like, okay, so we're going to obviously see activation in the optic nerve because he's looking at something. But what they picked up on was that his motor neurons, the observing monkey, the motor neurons were firing off almost as if he himself was eating a banana. Now, what they found is there are these things in the brain that literally inherit someone else's emotional state and we rebuild it inside ourselves as a proxy to how you would feel. And it makes sense because I can never be you and you can never be me. So the only way I can connect with you, what is empathy? Well, empathy really is a collection of mirror neurons in the brain that takes a whole bunch of data and goes, okay, I think that you, Cooper, feel this way because I'm going to literally, without my conscious awareness, rebuild your emotional state inside my emotional state. I ha if you feel sad, I feel sad in order to relate or understand your sadness. You have no conscious awareness or control over your ability to mirror neuron me. That is a good function. However, without conscious awareness or a, and a lack of boundaries, that will suffocate you. Mm. Boundaries is the key to long-term regulation. So I'm going to give you two answers. Once you know why that happens, which is what we just discussed, then you look at what to do. Mm. Two things to do. The first is understand when you need to say no. Stop looking at relationships as I need to sync with them or I need to run away from them. They are not your options. You modulate your frequency and intensity and you give what you have at any given time. You learn how to say no to protect your energy sometimes and you learn how to say yes even when it's slightly uncomfortable. Um, and your attachment style is 100% dictating your boundaries behavior. You do work on your attachment style, which you can do through therapy. You can go to theattachmentproject.com. You can follow the stuff that we do. We do heaps of work on it. Then your boundaries improve, your whole mental health improves. The, the second pillar, other than learning your boundaries, is learning how to tolerate uncomfortable emotions. Here's the thing I would have told that person. Feel it. But this is in context of somebody who works as a social worker. So they might be dealing with this negative emotion yep. more common than but others. But don't think of it in black and white. You do not need to take on their entire world exactly. every time. But you can take on a piece of their world. You can choose to take on a piece of that world. And, um, you know, I joke when I in my keynote talks. I say there's this new cutting-edge research that has just come out of UCLA. And it's innovative. We never thought that we would discover a finding like this. But apparently the literature says that no one's ever died from feeling awkward. That's a joke. Yeah. No one's ever died from feeling fucking uncomfortable. We have this aversion to like the moment a conversation gets hard. We kind of talked about this on our mm. pod, which is like lean in. You will not die from feeling momentary anxiety for someone who's talking to you about their anxiety. You will not be injured from someone talking to you about their depression. And you, you stop fearing of saying and doing something wrong. It's taking away from the connectivity of the moment. Lean in and grow some emotional capacity bollocks, mm, yeah. which is I can sit with this, breathe through this. And at the end of it, know that that's not mine to hold. I'm leaving it in that moment. Be a lightning rod, not a container. Mm, I love that. And I think it goes 
very well with kind of what I was saying to that person. Like, of course it's going to come. Like, you have to expect that we're going to feel these emotions, but then have the capacity to witness it and then go, okay, I can leave it in that moment. Okay, I know these other things that are going to fill my cup and get me back to that level of well-being that we want to sit at that's comfortable and happy and healthy, which I love. Let's talk about now. You've gone to Colombia. How's the exit at Microsoft and starting your own business in mental health to work? Uh, chapter because it's pretty similar age to me that sort of just after 25 something with mental health pops up that you're like i need to make a difference here obviously our story is very different but quite similar in ways yeah some too. people so, yeah, tell me there was a breakdown what happened there and um that out the other side to it got too much mental health business I, I i couldn't um it wasn't a choice to leave microsoft i was done i couldn't do my job and i couldn't the story I told myself at the time is I can't get well here. Mm-hmm. I need to get, I need to unplug a full unplug from everything. So I quit my job at Microsoft and moved back to Australia, moved in with my parents and had no plan. Had you finished studying at Columbia psychology? By you, or you... I'd started and then was doing it remotely. Okay. I had no idea what to do with my life. My only goal was to do the work. Get better. Get well. The work that I'd avoided for so long. Like Paris's story wasn't the end point. It was the start. Mm. It wouldn't have started without it though. And the work looked like finally going and talking to a therapist, even though it took me seven people to find someone that I clicked with. It looked like writing a life narrative to put a whole bunch of childhood stuff into perspective, make sense of it, process it so that I could realize there's a whole bunch of shit that I'm holding on to that's not mine and it's not necessary. I started exposure and response prevention therapy. I did CBT. I started an antidepressant. I made lifestyle changes, diet changes. Probably only um, most people wouldn't have to do that much work, but you will have to do work and it will be way more than just a walk around the block when you're stressed. Mm. You know, people who have mental illness, you can live the life that you dream, but you just got to be prepared to put in the, the, the heavy lifting. And as I was putting in the heavy lifting and just like a physical physique, you don't see results for a, a while. And then you start seeing, you're like, holy shit. And for the first time ever, I figured out who the fuck I was. And all I wanted to do after that moment is just be harassed for one other person. That's it. That's my quest from now on, be harassed for someone else. So I went down to my local beach and just like he did said, all right, shatter the illusion of this perfect world. Here's what's real for me. Someone wore their heart on their sleeve and it saved my life. Here's mine. And then I uploaded that video and my life's never been the same since. Boom. People all around the world started drawing and tattooing hearts in their arms, coming forward, sharing their story, making meaning from their pain. And now it's a global movement of emotional authenticity to inspire people to be real about how they feel and say I'm not okay without waiting to be asked. Mate, it's so powerful and it's so cool what you've created from obviously such a dark place yourself. It's um, super inspiring. Like I said, you're someone who I've really looked up to. There's so many different, I guess, entries into the mental health space and quite often it is a story similar to yours coming from a really dark place. I'm obviously very stoked that you're still here with us but have used that pain to create a powerful program, multiple powerful organisations from Heart on My Sleeve Charity to your keynote speaking stuff and also your programs you run with corporates Mm -hmm. and some of the biggest companies in the world. So, yeah, do you want to talk to me about 
that next step of your career into speaking and then maybe we'll go into the last bit, maybe just a couple of practical mental health tips yeah. through the framework that you use because I know so much of yours is on connection and ways that we can do that. So I want to get into that, but let's talk about that next stage of starting to get yourself better. I need to build a charity to spread this word yeah. further and wider. So I didn't even something know. that I'll geek out on a bit because I'm like, through this stage of the business maybe a year or two ago, so it's interesting to hear how other people did it. Oh, man. I'm I, sure people listening will be interested too. And if you're not, bad luck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bad luck. No, I've, I, I mean, I've I learned just well, probably more from you than you do from me. I think we're, we're, we mentor each other in a lot of ways. And the, the younger thing and all that stuff, you have created something so special. And, and I think your key ingredient, I will answer your question, but this is important. Your key ingredient that I think your listeners will, will um, verify is you have an incredible ability to make the complex simple. And you have an incredible ability to stay tenacious and consistent when it's easier not to that's like Coop's special source. Third, you're just a fucking good guy. And so you're magnetic in the sense that you're truly caring. You don't just tokenistically care. You, you truly care. Um, but your consistency, your simplicity, and your care, like those three pillars is what I think the reason why good humans thrive. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, bro. And so for, for Homs, it was, it would be a lie to say it was an accident, but it was kind of just like, this mind-blowing, it wasn't supposed to be a charity. It was just a story that kind of happened. Yeah, so you put a YouTube video up telling your story, Facebook, super vulnerable. and then I'm on the project Facebook, and like... You put your photo on your arm and it went super viral, people relating to your yeah. rock-bottom vulnerability story. And then I'm like, Do, is this a thing? Should this be an organization? Is it a campaign? Is it under my brand? Is it its own brand? Do we get DGR status, not profit? What's its mission? What the fuck do we actually do? Was it? Should it just be a video? And that's it. And like, game over. Like... And that is something there is no playbook for. You just need to feel it out. And we've been feeling it out now for just over six years. And Heart of My Sleeve's taken so many different iterations and forms before it's finally landed on what I say, Heart of My Sleeve 3.0, which is its global mission to uh, inspire a generation to be emotionally authentic. And the way that we do that is by helping people drop the brave face and be real about how they feel in mental health and in all domains of life. And we do that through our core, three core pillars, um, which is inspiring stories, uh, safe spaces, and uh, engaging programs. And everything from the tattoo movement through to the apparel, through to storytelling, through to behavioral change initiatives that we do through the media. We run group circles. Uh, we have free online education and e-learning courses, uh, blah, 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 blah. But for, for a while, we were also a workplace training organization. And then we realized, no, our, oh, sorry. Yeah. We were, um, I'll put that on mute. We were, for a while, Homs was trying to be, and this might be interesting for you. Yeah, yeah. We were focusing on two different demographics or um, users. The first person we were trying to help were what we called help seekers, also could be called sufferers, but those who were experiencing mental ill health or challenging life situations. So like me with OCD and anxiety. We were also then trying to talk to supporters of those people. 
So those in the situation, how do I help? How do I connect? Blah, blah, blah. So we would build these programs, trying to talk to both, and our messages weren't really landing because there's such different needs. We would say, here's conversations training, and people would walk in, and to my surprise, conversations to most people means, how do I help someone through a hard time? Mm. It's not, how do I say I'm not okay? Whereas that, to me, I was like, well, there's two sides to a conversation. So it was agonizing listening constantly listening to our audience and the products we were putting out as a charity and then triangulating that with the business model and funding and how's all that going to work and then trying to be unique and not overlap with other players that enabled us to like get one audience under our bucket one clear line of sight and do an inventory of like what is it that makes us us that we can capitalize on and then carve out anything else and i've pulled that under my personal brand because mm-hmm. it's burdening the charity and it's unnecessary and now my personal brand is a keynote speaker programs etc and my three core pillars are connection resilience and high performance um but right now my i'm in the chapter of for sure connection mm-hmm. um, real conversations program has taken off in a big way and is used by yeah, Lend Lease, Microsoft, American Express, KPMG, Bacon McKenzie, Legoland, etc. It's been delivered live on four continents so far um, to thousands of people and uh, can has been proven to boost connection by up to 250% uh, with like a 9.4 out of 10 average satisfaction rating. And because it teaches people to drop out of their head into their heart and learn how to feel with others, um, we've got this five-stage process called ELSA B, engage, listen, safety, action boundaries. Um, and, but even the relationship between the charity and my personal brand, like that was such a, it still kind of is a thing. I was the charity for so long. Like Coops is kind of the good human factory and, but you, you, good human factory is becoming a living, breathing entity of itself. And when that starts to happen, you've really created something special because it has merit and can live on without you. Mm. Um, and my personal mission complements Heart on My Sleeves, but now I don't even work in Heart on My Sleeve. I'm a volunteer chairman. I was the CEO for like five, six years. And now I, I ring my, my general manager once a week. We have a one-on-one and she runs it. And it's like crazy to think that that's by no means we're flushed, but we got to a point where I'm like, we're doing some things. We're doing the thing. And um and I, my goal is laser focused, change a billion lives to become more mentally healthy through the um, content that I make, the businesses that I build and the programs that I run. Um, and we're, we're even trying to quantify that now through impressions, eyeballs, listeners, all that stuff. And not just the exposure, but then the ch- behavior change as a result of that. Mm. Like, ultimately, we want people to become more resilient and feel like there is more meaning and depth to life. And um, I won't, yeah, this is this is me for, for right. eternity. How long are we at? Yes, we can keep going for a little bit. How long are we at? We're at an hour, but I've still got heaps I want to talk to you yeah. about now because I want to talk to you about, like, it's so incredible, the, the journey and the timeline and the similarities and differences that we've had, but with all the same purpose of trying to improve people's mental health. And I love the way that you, your guys' organisation is so really, especially hard on my sleeve, Holmes, the uh, charity is focused on those people who have mentally ill health and those people who are helping them. 
And I love that there's so much space in the industry for all of us. And I'm sure you'll agree watching what I do. I kind of am approaching like the, I look at, say we've got a spectrum of a hundred percent of people and 20% of us have a mental illness. Let's call that 20% have mental health two out of 10 and below. Everyone else is above. My whole goal with what I'm doing is trying to like make everybody move up one or two rungs on the scale through the techniques and strategies and values that I talk about. But there's still so much space in the industry for people like your organization and your workshops to help everybody as well. It's like just because you're a seven and you must see this all the time going into a corporate space, someone will be like pretty confident, pretty happy about themselves guy. But it's like you ask them, how do you feel out of 10? And they might say a seven. It's like, why are we not making everybody who's a seven and nine? Like Mm. we owe it to ourselves to do that. And that's why I think it's important that we really start to associate mental health as something that no matter who you are, your mental health can get better. It's always a working progress. There's always a tap that's pouring into a bucket that's filling up based on the shit that we all deal with that we need to have holes that it's emptying. Because if you're not, it's going to fill up and we're going to get to that point where it's that really tough time. Totally. There's absolutely a need for all different types of players. And I see the work that we do as people and our brands as completely complementary. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, you help people thrive. That's the easiest way I can put it. Mm. And I I gladly and happily help people survive first. Um, Because for me, I couldn't even think about thriving until I got to surviving, like truly surviving. And I think, you know, the one to 10 question is interesting because it's it's your current frame of reference. If you haven't gone through a healing journey, your what you think is seven can like you have no idea how good you'll feel after you do the actual work and clean house of the demons. Mm. Like th- that, you'll have a whole new scale. You accessible, the range you know? Exactly what you think is a seven, you're actually really a four for what's possible. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's why I think it's important to always be on that not healing journey, it's kind of a bit cliche to say, but always curious, what little things can I continue to have? Because the world's changing. The one thing that's constant in life is change, so we have to continue to evolve. I want to talk about your programs now because I think this is a little segment that we can finish on that will give the listeners, I know they've already got so much value, but a few things that they'll be able to relate to. It's obviously topics that you talk so uh, so well about in your keynotes. Can we talk about what do you think is probably the best little 15 minutes that we can chat now. Do you think it's about your real connections program, about your high achievers? Because I think, yeah, talking about this connection and how we can open up conversations, Mm. you're so qualified to maybe give the listeners a few tips on how to build real connections. Yeah, well, I I definitely, um, I want to make this as valuable for your listeners as possible. So I won't bother talking about how the business is structured or where we do the programs, but I'll just tell you like the learnings. Yeah. And yeah, I think connection is is a good one to to kind of double down on because, you know, the our the quality of our life is driven by the quality of our relationships. Human relationships are the heartbeat of life and work. But yet so many of us don't know how to connect. We've never felt more lonely. Suicide stats have never been higher. And the single greatest variable to your mental health outside of genetics is your the relationships that you hold. So there is this desperate need to improve our ability to go from talking to connecting because people think they're the same thing. They're just absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have found is that most of us believe or all of us know 
the the shared goal we have as humans when we're in conversation to another person is we want to be helpful but we're using the wrong tool so our traditional tool to be helpful is iq from the head where someone has a problem and our goal is fix it get rid of it make it go away um which has served us well i mean most of us are incentivized and compensated our whole careers by how good of a problem solver we can be but expecting that that tool expecting that one tool can use be used on everything is delusion it's like expecting that the sledgehammer you would use to take down this wall here is the same instrument you would use to tweezer this diamond into a piece of gold you don't use a sledgehammer how many of us carry the sledgehammer of problem solving home from work or even at work in the wrong conversations when our partner says i'm feeling really distant from you i'm like oh we'll go for dinner on the weekend no you missed it you just missed the whole thing that's not what they wanted they wanted talk to me why how's that playing out how's that affecting you at the moment we went straight to the solution a child coming up to their parent i'm getting bullied at school i'll come and talk to the principal with you not nope, you missed it you missed the moment of oh shit is that weighing on you? Mm. Talk, talk to me. Tell me more. How's that playing out? We're missing the moments of when it, when you move from IQ, anything to do with logic, and it even sniffs in the territory of EQ. Your whole metric of success has to shift from how well can I solve this problem to how well can I allow them to feel understood. Connection is the medicine. They did a meta analysis across. Oh, a shit ton of studies, which is a meta-analysis is studies of studies. And as to why does therapy work when you go and talk to someone and um, share your feelings? And what was less of a factor around someone getting better was the type of intervention used. It was the quality of the relationship formed. So how seen, heard, and understood someone was got them better as more of an important um, input than whether they did CBT or DBT or whatever. So care is literally the medicinal component of a conversation, not the content. The moment it enters emotional territory, you got to put the sledgehammer down and pick up the tweezers and know that they're looking to feel understood and heard. They're not looking to feel fixed. And most of the time, that's the therapeutic intervention that gets them better. Mm. And you also have to know that you, in an EQ, emotional-based conversation, what we term as a real conversation, that's the name of our program. A traditional conversation is IQ, a real conversation is EQ. You, you're usually trying to move someone out of the mud. Like if someone's stuck in the mud, a traditional conversation and everything in your instinct is to want to lift them out. I'm telling you to go dangle your feet in. I'm telling you when they're in the mud, sit beside them and put your feet in. That is the best thing you can do. Because remember, problems aren't the thing that often does the emotional damage. It's the shame around it. Mm. And if you don't connect with someone, you're missing the disinfectant of the entire shame bubble. And, you know, for example, if someone's experiencing grief, the single best thing you can ask them is, what do you miss about that person the most? Not, what can I do to help? At least they're in a better place. Mm. Can I come over this weekend and I'll cook you dinner to take your mind off it? No, 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 no. An emotion, if an emotion exists, it must be felt in order to be let go of. Mm. 
There is tax to pay. Share the load with them. That's how they move on. Mm. We say that there are five archetypes of connection monsters. <laughs> the first archetype is the magician. Someone who believes that they're just going to take everyone's problems away. You know you're a magician if you find yourself saying should or shouldn't a lot. You should do this. You should go talk to someone. You should exercise. You should meditate. You should blah, blah, blah. When someone comes to you with vulnerability, the first thing you have to do is land them. You have to validate them. The validation window is the way you 100x a relationship by not trying to just magically fix someone. The second archetype um, is the, uh, the thief. You know you're the thief if you say same or me too a lot. So uh, I, I had a shit drive to work this morning. The thief goes, oh, me too. I got cut off on the M5. It was the worst. Whereas a connector says, oh, that sucks. How long were you stuck there for? And we move into that window of pain as opposed to away from it. Then we have the blind optimist. The blind optimist, you know you're, you're one of these if you say the words at least a lot. You bombard with silver lining and positivity. There's a lot of this going on at the moment. People getting retrenched. People saying, oh, at least you got a payout. It's like, what about the fucking job I just lost? Someone's house burns down. Oh, at least you're safe. What about the 40 years of fucking belongings that just burnt down? I just had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you can get pregnant. Nah. Bombarding was, there is a time and a place for reassurance, just like how there's a time to be a magician of offering solutions. But it's not first. Connection is a very small window of time in the moment that someone extends out their humanity and you meet them in it before you try and take them anywhere else. Mm. The fourth character type of disconnection uh, is the ostrich, the person who buries their head in the sand and you know that you are an ostrich if you find yourself saying, so what? Well, she'll be right. Um, I want to avoid awkwardness and uncomfort at all costs. And I would prefer someone suffer in silence than me not know what to say, but just show up and listen. Uh, and people with dismissive attachment styles are very often an ostrich. And, you know, the key there is building the EQ to be able to, to lean in and know what to do. And then the last character type is the helicopter. And you find yourself as a helicopter if you say the words, oh, no, a lot, which is you freak out when anyone's in distress or danger. We don't, you know, emotions are scientifically proven to be contagious, up to like three degrees of separation. We learn how to regulate our own emotions through the external, observing the external environment. Like, for example, when you're in a plane, I don't know about you, but it could be fucking turbulence everywhere, like oxygen masks deployed the whole works, and I won't be scared. The moment the airline attendant looks in 1% stressed, I'm like, we're going down, you know? <laughs> so, and that, that's the way that we're, we grow up. A child looks at the parent to see their reaction to understand the world around them. A, a student will look up to the teacher. A, a staff member will look up to their manager to, to see how they should be regulating. So if you freak out when someone is in distress, you are exacerbating the whole issue. It doesn't mean always be calm, cool, collected. If you yourself are experiencing a, a moment of pain, you should lean on other people and freak out all you want. But when you're wearing the role as a supporter and your intent and job is to connect, you damn well better plug into the ground like mm -hmm. a trunk of a tree, not the leaves blowing in the wind. So if we rewire those five mistakes 
And we come in with the intention of the moment something becomes EQ, we drop from the head to the heart and our goal is now to understand and slow down and just sit in someone's humanity, we will have a better world. And I haven't seen a program better than what Real Conversations is doing to make people really fucking good at that. Mate, I'm sure everyone listening can relate. I related to every single one of the ones that you just said then at different times throughout life and at different maturity levels and at just different situations because they are quite situational depending on what the person comes to you. But I think that advice there and that just awareness that you brought to people to go, oh, I do do that a lot. I think I'm helpful. Because the thing is, quite often it's coming from a place of thinking that it, you're helpful. It's because... 99.9% of the time is. Exactly. There's so no bad, bad intent. Exactly. Don't feel shame. Exactly. Don't it's get stuck about, in the shame membrane, baby. Exactly. So I think that's amazing. So thank you. I know there's a few other things that you're very passionate about. Going to therapy. Why do we have to go to therapy? I think going to therapy is like signaling to yourself and other people I'm taking accountability. You know, people often say, I don't want to be a burden. I have never, ever helped someone who's trying to improve their life and thought they're a burden. A burden is someone who gives up and makes it everyone else's problem. When you go to therapy, you're signaling to your subconscious brain and your network who loves you and cares about you, I'm trying. And it's going to give you the greatest chance and the conditions to have a set moment in the week where I'm devoting this and protecting this to become more integrated. And there are just things that you cannot see on your own without a mirror to be able to go. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to go and mine yourself for for areas of improvement? Or why wouldn't you want to? Yeah, blind spots. Or why wouldn't you want to go lift the weights with a, a personal trainer? Now, I can hear everyone on the other end of this say, oh, you think it's that affordable, do you? Don't you know that there's a living crisis, a rental increase, blah, blah, blah. I hear you. And if you were genuinely, and I say this because um, we love some, I said this on Brad's podcast, like if you are genuinely struggling to stay above water and you're living like cent to cent, my heart goes out to you and I hope that we as a country can 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 support you through this hard time. Yeah, how's the Australian mental health um, plan thing work with well, the GP? Well, yeah, but or I was going to say, but... Anymore? But there, that's what I mean. There is some, a lot of great free resources we do have. But if you're hiding behind money as an excuse, exactly. which a lot of us do, when it's actually not true because we'll go and blow a whole bunch of money on coffees and beer and all the other shit that doesn't matter and a new iPhone that we don't need, as opposed to just going straight to the center. And if we learn how to feel happier, better then we need less things. Um, I call bullshit on everyone who says, on most people who are in non-survival mode, who says I can't afford it. It's like Australia's got a mental health care plan. We have health insurance options. There are tons of different therapy options that aren't just clinical psychologists that people can go to, healers, coaches, etc. Takes a little bit of Googling. Um, Hell, I interviewed my own personal therapist on my podcast three weeks ago and put the link to his website directly and said, go book a session with him. Mm. Like, he's tried and tested. He's a man. Uh, um, So I think that we, the reason why I'm so passionate about getting people into therapy is because it builds the awareness that gives you the key to a choice as to whether you want to keep living this character or not. 
Mm, I love that. It's so beautiful. And this, this idea of character that I've been playing a lot recently in my head. And I feel like to be in a happy, healthy place, a lot of it has to do... No matter, as much as we don't like to admit it, all of us are wearing masks. There's the masks that the voice inside of our head is like step one, I feel like. And then there's, hey, you up to your partner and stuff. Hey, you up to the world. Hey, you up to social media. And I've, I've been playing with this idea recently of like, to have a healthy relationship is how close you can get all the masks to be together. No matter who you are, they're all like not matched up. Like we're always showing up a bit differently in different situations, but the closer you are to the matched up is that's your truth. That's living to, okay, I can show up everywhere and not have to fucking put on a mask. Yeah. Which we all have at times. Like in work, I'm sure you walk up to a corporate keynote a bit different than you walk up to dinner with mum. Of course, we're all going to wear different masks, but it's like how close can you get them together is when you're not carrying the burden of, fuck, I have to go put that one on again. Shit, I have to go put that one on again. It's like, ah. Agree. Yeah, I think the more that we can get to that truth and that authenticity, I think in the psychology term, for what you just described is integration, Mm. where the different like if if I borrow from a school called internal family systems, a type of psychotherapy, it's where the different parts of our psyche and schemas, which is normal to have, come around a campfire, Mm. where they're all still separate to some degree. They're discrete parts, but they're on the same page and they're kind of singing around the same song sheet guided by the same values yeah morals yeah and that there's a uh, uh, in this circle there's almost an adult self that sits above them like a central Mm. force that has the values that can govern when different parts of us want different things we Mm. come back to an overarching value system that gives us a clear north star Mm. and that's the through line when we feel as though we still need to switch masks, but there's always a through line of values and character. Mm. No, I love that. I think it's great. Where are we at? I'm going to have one more question for you. You One more, yeah. I want to talk to you just about masculinity. Mm. It's something, obviously, being young men who work in a space of mental health, who are, I guess, figureheads of, like, young, inspiring role models, maybe, call both of us in our own term, people getting up in front of audiences to speak. Toxic masculinity is something that, I try and not avoid, but it's just such a complex topic. And I think it's really important to have masculinity and it's gotten really poorly touted because of the word toxic before it. Talk to me about masculinity and what it means to you and how it comes up in your work and the way through connection and conversations can sometimes be looked at through the lens of the feminine side of us. How important is it to have that balance? I think, first of all, I'm just going to say masculinity in and of itself is inherently a good fucking thing. Mm. Really good for, well, men, if you identify as a man, um, even for women to some degree, but just to simplify the start of this conversation, positive masculinity and leaning into your roots, I'm a huge advocate for. Mm. And there's a lot of good qualities that come from that, like that, that perseverance, that stability, that groundedness, that suredness, that... Um, the passion, the drive, like there's so many good qualities. It's not, toxic masculinity is the wrong words for me. It's unhealed trauma, mm. regardless of gender. If you've got unhealed trauma, you're going to be a cunt. Uh, in some way, you just will. Uh, and when, when you pile masculinity on top of unhealed trauma, then you get insecure men mm. who hurt other people because they feel small and they project that shit on everyone. Um, I couldn't think of anything more cool or that would get like 
my nuts hard as a straight dude who loves women than going and doing like B Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the sand with a group of boys and fucking beating our chestnuts to the ocean and then eating a steak with gratitude and then hanging out and sharing our feelings like that living fully as a man but not so much so that you become ignorant aggressive hostile chaos which is all medicine is poison depending on dosage you take two panadols you're you're good you take 30 panadols you're gonna die so masculinity is good to a point but then you also need some feminine balance like the yin has a droplet in it the yang has a droplet in it to pull you back from the excess edge and that feminine spirit even a slice of it enables us to, to drop into our feels we still have the bedrock of healthy masculinity that drive that mm. but then the feminine droplet enables the care tendering tender helpful connector within us to operate and thrive which i think hopefully you and i are trying to get as aligned as possible mm. to that sweet center of fully masculine but also with a feminine touch mm. yeah i think it's so important i think people listening to that hopefully well yeah relate and re realize and i think 99 percent of us do realize what masculinity and femininity should be and there's just a few key figures that are kind of ruining it for everyone. But anyway, I won't go too. Can I, just yeah. on that, you know, when I, when I hear the, the man up is such an ironic thing, here's the thing. Manning up is not about denying or suppressing your feelings. Because when you man up in that approach, you're an absolute, for lack of a better word, bitch. Because what's going to happen is you're going to do heaps of insecure shit. You're going to try and fight people. You're going to mistreat your family. You're going to be an emotional robot. You're going to be an asshole to be around. Um, you're going to drink too much. That type of man, that's not what they mean when they mean man up. Manning up is not just getting over it. Manning up is having the ability to go feel that hard thing so that it doesn't rule your fucking life. That's mm -hmm. manning up. That's true courage is staring pain staring at it looking it down the barrel and saying i'm going to do this because it's going to make me a better father a better brother a better leader a better blah 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 manning up is the ability to take it on the chin really feel and not let shame get in the way really feel it so that i can grow mm. um it is not suppression mm. i love that I, I think people need to hear that i think it's so important to recognize what true strength is, what true courage is, and sometimes it is not what we think as men, that we think it's pushing it down and getting over it, it's no facing up to it, so the next time something similar happens, you don't go through the same thing, so you have more things in your toolbox, so you can overcome that difficult time that yeah. quite often would throw you off the edge, but man, we could talk for hours, I need to vacate this room so you can have another <laughs> chat with someone very shortly, so yes, I'm going to ask you the last question I do ask everyone, and I'm excited to hear your answer to this, so what does being a good human mean to Mitch Wallace? Who you are when no one's looking. Beautiful. I think it's really easy to be a good human on the outside. Like, go start a charity. Even hard on my sleeve, I often reflect on... There's a ton of that that serves me and my ego. And when when my face hits the pillow at night that I get to go, no, but I'm a charity founder. And it's like, no, nah, that's not a real good human. A good human is no one will ever find out but i'm going to live this way because this inherently is my value you know that's the adult that's the orchestra conductor to everyone sitting around the fire it is the moments of letting someone 
you know, standing up for someone if there was only two of you on the bus. It is the bringing them a spare tea bag instead of just thinking about your own tea when you're coming over. It is um, taking an extra second to message someone and be like, hey, I'm really proud of you for doing this. And no other friend finding out that you text that friend, that thing. And um, getting out of your own way, the greatest antidepressant I've ever taken is being a good human. Mm. And that is being in service to others, not just myself. I absolutely love that. It's going to be something I'm going to toy with and steal because I think that really is Please beautifully stop. put. The idea of being a good human is an incredible antidote for mental health. That's what I oh. always say. The byproduct of living to these good human values is good mental health, not the other way around. We're not trying to fix a mental health problem. We're trying to inspire people to live to these good human values and good mental health is a byproduct. It's, it's proven in research. Yeah. You, got, you log on to the five ways of well-being study one of the top five is service, mm. i.e. being a good human. It's one of the top yeah. five proven ways to get mental health. Yeah, it's incredible, all the research that I love. But, mate, thank you so much for jumping yeah, on. Man, I'm going to put it all, um, all your stuff in the show notes. People can find Heart on My Sleeve, find your speaking stuff, yep. check out Real Conversations, highly encourage, get it okay, in the yeah. workplace. And, yeah, thanks so much for jumping on. We'll yeah, have man, to Coops. do some more of these because we've got so much we can talk about. Love you, bro. Cheers, Cheers brother. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.